is a little bit of a throwback that I really want to feature um, right after the hurricane in Houston. We were fortunate enough to be able to do a quick interview with Nisi without further ado. Okay, so let's see. So, I mean, whenever you're ready, go ahead and just tell me, um, you know, start with your name and tell me everything that you do with the Black Women's Defense League. What is your role with that organization? So, my name is Nisi. I'm the founder of an organization called Black Women's Defense League, and we are a primarily Black women and women of color's advocacy group, but we um, break out and do just about anything and everything that is required of our community and that we really, you know, need to be focusing on. Sometimes it is disaster relief. Sometimes it is uh, planning, you know, functions and different things on the behalf of others. Sometimes it's getting counselors to people who don't have the financial capacity to do it. We just try to be there in um, all of the different ways and to um, put those who are most marginalized first, um, because then that means that nobody gets left out. Absolutely. And, and so we're kind of, um, for everybody who's listening, uh, we sort of found each other through, um, I found your information actually on a, um, an article that was talking about where the best places to donate for Hurricane Harvey are. I know that there's been kind of a lot of stuff going around. Um, about how, you know, donating your money to the Red Cross just kind of goes to the Red Cross and doesn't necessarily yeah. go to the people who really do, you know what I mean, like who really do need it. Um, so right. tell me a little bit about what your role is with Hurricane Harvey survivors um, and, and victims and, you know, where are you even, where are you calling me from? I haven't even gotten that far yet. Uh, I'm in Houston right now, actually, and what we've been doing is collecting um, donations, both financial and physical donations, and getting them to neighborhoods that were hardest hit but hadn't really been getting as much attention. We're actually trying to head out to Beaumont this evening. We're hearing that the roads might not be open or they're not allowing people in, but we're going to try anyway. Um, and we've been just in different places, Sidwell Street, Fifth Ward, Third Ward. Um, just a lot of different spaces in Houston and we just pop the trunk and set up some tables and let people come and get what they need and then also for parents of school-aged children who uh, are otherwise you know going to be in school soon once schools open back up a lot of them unfortunately don't have you know their school supplies or their school uniforms or clothes and things like that and so we've been taking orders and uh making that stuff available to them, just going and buying the stuff for them um, and making sure that they have what they need to start the school year fresh and have a good a good uh, school year. But just in every way that we can help, we, we've been trying to. We're looking at setting up a more permanent site um, so that the recovery effort isn't one that kind of dissipates and fades away after, mm -hmm. you know, it goes off of the news cycle, which is kind of what tends to happen. Um, and so we're just really hoping that we can keep the fire alive and that people will continue to support and know that, you know, the effort is, um, is continuous. And it's, it is a continuous effort um, that, you know, we have to stick to. People are trying to rebuild and do a lot of different things. And so we're just here to be a part of that. That's really amazing. I mean, I know that, uh, you know, ongoing efforts and after Hurricane Katrina, I was sort of I mean, there are still cleanup efforts and, and rebuilding efforts happening, and you just never hear about that. So I think that that's, that's amazing that you're trying to set up a permanent, a more permanent site. Um, something that we have been kind of mulling over since Hurricane Harvey and since, like, kind of this, the genesis of this podcast is, is how 
communities of color are hit so much harder by things like natural disaster. Um, and, you know, just, I wondered if maybe you could explain a little bit of, of why that is, of why we see, you know, communities of color going through to, and losing so much more than, than maybe more affluent communities. Yeah, I mean, things that people don't think about are the stability that having excess funds provides you. When something tragic mm -hmm. happens to you and you have something like, a, I don't know, a savings account, <laughs> the way that it's going right. to affect you and your family is going to be intimately different than someone who's living paycheck to paycheck. Poverty affects people in a number of different ways. But even beyond that, when you look at the resources and who they come to first, the neighborhoods that they choose to serve first, um, they are unfortunately um, not always neighborhoods of people of color. And so, you know, it just makes sense that we are doing everything that we can um, to facilitate that. Um, yeah, I just, I appreciate you taking, I can't even imagine how busy and crazy right. you are right now. The fact that you even responded to my email just like was so amazing. I'm so happy to get to talk to you. And, and my last question for you, Nisi, is how can we help? Where can we donate? Where can we send supplies? How can we, and from other parts of the country, be, be helping your efforts? Um, while you can send physical supplies, we have a, um, a P.O. box. Uh, gosh, I should probably have it on hand. Um, really what we want people to do is send us an email, blackwomensdefenseleague at gmail.com, and we can direct them accordingly for relatively smaller boxes. We're sending them at the P.O. box. For larger boxes, we have a private address that those are coming to. Um, and also funds. I mean, sometimes people get, like, their warehouse is stocked full of diapers because those are like feel good donations. But when somebody needs like sheetrock to, you know, rebuild sure. or they're needing, you know, actual physical things so that they can um, get stuff done. Um, I think that it's good that, you know, people are able to get the funds that they need and we're all about trying to make sure that that happens. So um, you can get financially, you can get physically, you can do both. You can come and, you know, make your body available. We need folks to come out um, and stay here for the long haul and make sure that everything is turning out all right. Well, thank um, you so but, much. I mean, tell me about where yeah. you're, like, can we find you on Facebook? Where's your website and where everybody, I know I found, and I should have it up too, but I don't. Um, yeah, yeah. I found <laughs> it's <laughs> it's www.bwdl.info and our PayPal's respectively, we're working with an organization called World on My Shoulders. Um, our PayPal's are paypal.me slash bwdl and the World on My Shoulders is paypal.me slash world on my shoulders. That's amazing. I would love to touch base with you again in the coming months and just see how the relief effort is, is still kind of unfolding and, and how you're finding everything going. And, and again, thank you so much for taking time to chat with me today. And please stay safe out there. I'm sure it's, it's just total chaos when you're getting out there and, and getting supplies to people who really desperately need it. We will. And I wanted to just add just on the, on the side, uh, something that Please. we haven't heard too many people talking about is our undocumented family. Like we have to make sure that if we're saying we want to be these sanctuary cities, um, that the people who are over shelters are not allowing ice into the shelters. We heard about that at GRB, which is the main um, Red Cross FEMA center downtown where they allowed ice in and a number of other shelters. People are giving to Red Cross in these larger 
organizations, um, maybe unbeknownst to the fact that sometimes that action puts people who are more marginalized and, you know, that's like you're, you are going through some tragedy, you lose everything. And then on top of it, people are trying to deport you, you know, right. and so we want to make sure that folks know that that type of stuff is going on and that people are yes. putting um, their minds on that, but also their resources and stuff like that and working on ways to help uh, immigrant and undocumented communities. Um, so yeah, just, just side I, note. I appreciate but, um, that. Yeah. Mentioning that so much because that's something too that, um, I'm from New Mexico originally. And so that's another issue that's very near and dear to my heart. And it's something that we talk about all the time. And especially if you're, I mean, if you've been evacuated from a place and then, and you don't even necessarily speak English completely fluently, and then people are coming to take you away. It's just absolutely the most disgusting thing I've ever heard in my life. It's really yeah. despicable. So shedding light on that is super, super important. Right, right. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, I really appreciate you for having me on. I wish I had more time to chat with you because there's so many different stories, but I'd love to uh, recap with you later on and see uh, yeah, what to do. Yeah, Alrighty. please do. Thank you so very much. We are so lucky and excited to have interviewed Jen Brockman, the director of the Sexual Assault Prevention and Education Center at the University of Kansas. Um, Mo got to see um, the show that we reference um, in this interview in Portland and, you know, was just so moved by it that she had to invite Jen onto the podcast. And again, we're so lucky she said yes. I won't say any more and be a spoiler, um, but we just absolutely couldn't be more excited. Here's Jen. Okay. Okay, so we are officially recording and, and I just, uh, I kind of want to jump right in. Um, I'm so excited to introduce Jen Brockman, Director of Sexual Assault Prevention and Education Center at the University of Kansas and creator of What You Were Wearing Installation. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak about the installation and, and spread that information out. Will you, will you start just kind of by telling us about yourself and, and how you came to be at the University of Kansas in your position? Sure. Well, I'm the director of the Sexual Assault Prevention Education Center here at the University of Kansas. This is a new office at the university. It started in January of 2016. And so I came to the University of Kansas specifically to help open this office up and really uh, get KU's um, primary prevention education program surrounding gender-based violence up and going. Um, prior to coming here, um, I've worked in the advocacy and gender-based violence prevention field um, for the last 16 years. So for my entire career has focused on supporting survivors and working towards the ultimate goal of the elimination of sexual violence. Oh, that's amazing. So, I mean, let's talk about what you were wearing and tell us exactly what that project is and, and how it came to be I and mean, what gave you the idea to, to put it together. Well, the What You Are Wearing Survivor Art Installation is meant to be a visual representation of this age-old and pervasive question um, that is often asked of those who have been affected by violence, which is that question of, well, what were you wearing? And it's usually mm -hmm. said with an intonation kind of like that. Um, and we, we really focus on the people in survivors' lives who will ask this question seemingly from a well-intentioned space. And this question is not unique. Um, it's part of what we look at as the trifecta of rape culture questions, which usually surround um, 
where you were at or what time you were out and mm-hmm. then what you were wearing. And then the, the third leg that we often see is the, well, what did you expect to happen? And so this installation really is looking to address that one question with a tangible answer to, uh, to that rape culture myth that often surrounds it. And where it came from, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, 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 I was just gonna say, it's just so fascinating. I mean, I, I came across um, an, an article about it and, and just, I mean, I must've read the article like six times because yeah. it was, it's such a, it's so important. It's so important. And I'm just, I'm just reflecting right now on the trifecta of questions because you're, you're absolutely right. That's always, those are the first three always. It's how to, how to victim blame, how to shame the victim is what we jump to as a society. Right. And it stems from a place of fear, of personalized fear as well as systemic fear. Um, and so often loved ones of the survivor will do what we call is the assumption of risk. And the assumption of risk is if we can identify the risk that the survivor assumed um, during their assault, if we can identify that, if we can hone in on that one thing that they did or multiple things that, that we perceive that they did, then all we have to do is avoid that action. And we will never be harmed. So this assumption of risk is meant as a self-preservation and as a sense to try to um, exercise control. But unfortunately, it's doing that, stepping on the well-being of the survivor, the person who's been impacted by harm. We use them as that springboard for our own safety. Um, So we really hope that this installation allows participants who view it to feel the weight and the labor and the burden um, that that question really carries. Because to ask it isn't work. It doesn't require any work of the person who's asking the question. And so we wanted that installation to flip that narrative and to put the work back on um, individuals who, who would be the askers to really see what that looks like when you, when you put it in a tangible form. Wow. And so what are some of the conversations that you're finding are coming out of the exhibit? Um, has it given a, a space, a safe space for young women to talk about their own experiences? Have maybe the opinions of any young men or any other young people, have, have they changed? What are you kind of finding? I think that the narrative that's surrounding the installation has evolved as we have changed and evolved our narrative as a culture. So this installation came to fruition in May of 2013 when Dr. Mary Wyant-Hebert of the University of Arkansas and I, uh, we were working together at the University of Arkansas at the time, were attending a conference that was put on by the Arkansas Coalition Against Sexual Violence in Little Rock. And in this conference packet was included a poem, I Was Wearing, by Dr. Mary Simmerling. And this poem, which is just stunning, and one of those... um, poems, when you read it, it just tears into your soul um, that she wrote in the early 2000s and had copyrighted in 2005. Um, Ask that question. I gave a detailed description of what she was wearing and had these beautiful words surrounding um, that the people asking this question have this assumption that um, we can end sexual violence or it's as easy to end sexual violence as it is just to change our clothes. Um, so when wow. Dr. Wyant Hebert and I read this poem um, during one of the breaks um, in the conference, we said, we have to do something with this. What could we do to really make this uh, a visceral experience? And so over that summer, uh, we've got <laughs> records of dozens and dozens and dozens of emails being sent back and forth between us, 
trying to develop this project. And so uh, when we, we had the, the concept of it, to use clothing to create um, kind of a three-dimensional space with this question. So in September 2013, we reserved Arkansas Student Union. And then that following April um, for Sexual Assault Awareness Month, we put it on for the first week. And um, I think initially back in, in April of 2014, the first time the show happened, there was a different conversation that was happening. Um, mm -hmm. We saw, um, this was after the Dear Colleague letter, the 2011 Dear Colleague letter. Mm -hmm. um, and so we saw the kind of this narrative really taking shape. Obviously, this isn't a new conversation. We've been having this conversation um, for a very long time in this country. I mean, we can look back to the Memphis race riots. It was the first time that um, women had mentioned or this conversation about sexual violence had been discussed in the political space when it was five young African-American women who were raped during the Memphis rape, rape riots and came forward before Congress and testified. And, um, and so, We've seen this evolution has been evolution has been long fought, um, but what was different, what I noticed was different from hearing the conversations that students were having this year in 2017 at the gallery showing versus mm -hmm. the conversations they were having in 2014 was a decrease in shock and surprise and an right. increase in desire for activism. So we've seen this growth um, away from awareness because our students, our university students, are very aware of gender-based violence. Um, this isn't a, oh my gosh, I didn't know that happened, and right. what is gender-based violence? This is something that they're extremely aware of, and they are ready and have a strong desire to do something about it, to really exercise activism. And so uh, the conversations have been fantastic. Um, survivors have been able to share a feeling of solidarity uh, a feeling of representation. Um, they'll say, you know, that's my outfit on the wall. That's my story. Those could be my clothes. Wow. And then those um, community members who are walking through it, we're hearing a lot of reflections of, um, I didn't know. When I said those words, I didn't know what I was actually saying. And um, a reflection of that this could be my outfitter. I wore this same thing last week. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. And um, so I do think we're seeing a cultural and a, an attitudinal shift in the way that we, we look at this myth. That's so amazing. Um, I kind of want to, I want to switch gears and sort of talk about what's happening, you know, with government regulations in response to that, or maybe not really even response to that, but I, I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on um, Betsy DeVos rolling back regulations on campus sexual assault investigations and what you think the consequences of that are, like, in, you know, in the context of this larger narrative and this cultural shift that we're experiencing. Well, right now, uh, any changes are still in the open question forum or in the open question stage. So I would mm -hmm. encourage anybody to utilize the um, access they have right now to share their thoughts with the Department of Education and talk about what, how Title IX has impacted their life and the importance of Title IX for um, academic success and access to academic resources and the ability to make education possible. Um, so we really hope folks will utilize um, this vehicle that's available right now to make sure that, that voices of those who've been affected by violence are heard and are, are not drowned out by other spaces. Right. For our center, for the Sexual Assault Prevention Education Center, our role is primary prevention. 
And so regardless of any changes that might come down um, from Title IX regulations, um, our mission and vision um, will not change. Uh, we're resolved to continue to stay our course and to continue to center survivors' voices and the work that we're doing to change attitudes, behaviors, and beliefs um, surrounding this topic. And so uh, whatever changes may come, um, our work will be steadfast and, and, it, and it won't derail our mission. That's so amazing. I just like breathe a huge sigh of relief. I hope, you know, so many, I hope, I wish that, you know, where I went to college had had the same sort of program. Um, you know, I, I just am, I hope that we can see more programs like yours just all over the country. I think we need it at every institution. Absolutely. Um, my last question for you is, you know, what can young women do to protect themselves? Is there even anything that you can do to protect yourself? And then, you know, what can we do to support young women who've experienced trauma? Great question. So we get that question a lot, especially from loved ones and guardians who um, come and are, are sending their, their young students to the university. There's that, this idea of, you know, what's that, that one thing that we can do? Um, our office really focuses on primary prevention. So ending violence and um, disrupting violence before, before it occurs. So mm -hmm. as a culture, we tend to lean heavily on um, questions or looking for answers surrounding what we call harm reduction or risk reduction actions and these are those historical things such as blue light phones or emergency phone services and sure um protection apps on phones and self-defense classes and um you know i never would incur or um, discourage anyone from utilizing um harm reduction or actions that help them feel safer and help them feel or have a perception of safety because um, you mm -hmm. know people need to do what they need to do to be comfortable However, uh, when we talk about addressing sexual violence, um, our conversation cannot end with a conversation about harm reduction. Um, you know, where that conversation starts is not where it can end. Um, recognizing that harm reduction, again, may reduce your risk of harm, but it is not prevention. Um, sure. The only real way to do prevention is to change those attitudes, behaviors, and beliefs that allow violence to occur in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, we often talk about um, what we call as harm reduction pinball. So when we speak only messages of harm reduction, such as traveling groups, watch your drinks, carry your keys between your fingers, all those narratives that we've heard about stranger danger. Yeah. In essence, what we're telling folks is make sure the perpetrator harms the other person. Wow. We're bouncing them from one vulnerability to another. Because mm -hmm. until we're addressing the reason why folks are perpetrating in the first place, all we're doing is redirecting them to someone who happens to have a vulnerability at that moment, which could be any of us, because we all carry vulnerabilities throughout time. Um, so we would really want people to start that conversation as young as possible with folks about boundaries, about consent and permission and the importance of bystander intervention and to stop teaching lessons about tattletaling um, to children and start teaching lessons about being proactive bystanders and getting involved in the community. Um, and for supporting survivors, uh, the big thing is to educate yourself, um, to really start by believing. Your job is not to investigate um, when someone discloses to you, when your friend uh, tweets out, hashtag me too. It's not to go in and ask questions, 
but it's to start by believing, to thank them for sharing with you, and to ask what they need from you right now. And those are really the spaces we would encourage people to come to. Wow, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing all of this. It's um, I can feel your compassion in 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 your your voice, and it just is making me kind of emotional. It's um, oh. I, I I really am very grateful for this interview. I I am um, I'm hoping, and my I guess I thought that was my last question, but I have one more. Do you ever <laughs> okay. have the intention <laughs> to to tour the installation? Have you ever um, have you thought of of bringing it to other other spaces? Oh, no, that's a fantastic question. One of the things that Dr. Mary Wyant Hibbert and I just wholeheartedly believe in is the ethics of distribution. And so anything that's created to benefit um, awareness and education about sexual violence, we feel like should be available freely um, and openly to anyone who wants to affect change. And so we have put together an installation packet. It's an electronic packet that includes templates for all of the marketing tools, content warnings, and a full curation guide, as well as the, uh, now we're up to 51 survivor stories. Um, that's available wow. electronically. And so at this point, we've received requests from, from about 105 campuses and organizations worldwide. Um, we're on four continents now and about three dozen installation requests from all over the world asking to put it on in their campuses and communities. So we have been fielding those requests. Our only requirement is folks who request um, partner with a local victim advocacy program. And so that they mm -hmm. email us back with the contact information of their local program they're gonna partner with if it's not already a, a rape crisis center or domestic violence shelter. And then we've been emailing them the installation package with full encouragement to display those. Um, most schools, most of the places that we hear are holding off and they're going to display them in April 2018, which is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. Mm -hmm. So we really hope that we will see a nationwide flood of um, installations. Um, we're really hoping that we see um, hundreds of these installations up in April 2018. So if anyone is interested in bringing it to their community, they can reach out to me at KU and I'm happy to provide um, those installation packets to them. I just, I want to thank you so much, Jen, for your time. This has been a really, really great experience to be able to talk to you about this, this article. And I just am, I'm so thankful for what you're doing and, and um, for this installation and, and the conversation that it's starting and, and continuing. And I just appreciate, I appreciate this interview so much. I'm just so, I just really do. Thank you so much for everything. Thank you, Morgan. We appreciate uh, giving us the time and space to, to share the story. <laughs>